Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. 1994, it's summertime in Georgia. Uh, we had a terrible flood come through, and when it began, our county, Taylor County, was one of the hardest hit counties uh, in the state. Uh, the Flint River runs through our county, and I we knew it was going to be bad. And I received a call from Governor Zell Miller uh, early on, and he told me that he wanted to get out and help us. He was uh, available, anything we needed, you know. And uh, uh, Governor Miller and I were great friends, had known one another quite some time. And as the days progressed, uh, with the river rising, uh, conditions got much worse for counties south of us. For a solid week there, it was just terrible. The rains were relentless, didn't let up. After everything subsided about oh, a week later, I get a call from uh, Governor Miller's uh, uh, aide, Martha Gillen, and Martha tells me that the governor is on a tour of Georgia uh, via helicopter and he wants to come into Taylor County and meet me at the airport that afternoon and uh, talk with me and just see what I needed and things like that. So uh, we had National Guard deployed, uh, GEMA and all kind of people in the county working to restore order. And I tell my couple of my deputies to go to the uh, store, get some cold drinks and things like that, have them at the airport. Uh, I didn't have any idea who was coming. About two o'clock, two helicopters, two military helicopters land, and on board are Governor Zell Miller, United States Senator Sam Nunn, United States Senator Paul Coverdale, Congressman Sanford Bishop, the Director of FEMA, James Lee Witt, the Director of GEMA, Gary McConnell, and a host of Atlanta news media and, and all kind of people. And they get off and uh, we're standing around, I'm passing out drinks, and uh, all of a sudden, Governor Miller puts his arm around me and says, Nick, I need to go over to your house and use a landline phone right now. What is your number? I tell him my home number, and one of the aides uh, writes that down, and they're uh, scrambling these radio transmissions to, to somebody, I don't know who. And so we start walking towards my house. You have to understand, I live uh, my property butts right up to the airport there in Butler, Georgia. So we're walking across the lawn, uh, my backyard, everybody, the whole whole group. And I, I look and I notice these cars parked at my house and I, it dawns on me about that time. My wife is a school teacher at the time and it's summertime. She and a lot of her girlfriends are having their weekly card game in our kitchen. So we, we open the back door and walk in and there's everybody sitting at the table having lunch and playing cards. And I, I bring all these people into my house and my wife doesn't know half of who I've got and we're making introductions. Well, what the deal was for the, to use the phone, uh, Governor Miller was about to accept a phone call from President Bill Clinton. And the purpose of that phone call was to declare Georgia a disaster area so we're standing there in the kitchen and everybody's shaking hands and uh, all of a sudden my phone rings and Governor Miller looks over at me and says, all right, Nick, answer the phone. <clears throat> so I assumed it was going to be the president. I answered it, you know, with the 
Hello, this is Sheriff Nick Giles of Taylor County, and this voice on the other end says, Hi, Nick, Bill Clinton. I understand you're having a rough time down in Georgia. And I responded, Yes, sir, Mr. President, we sure are. And he says, Well, let me speak to Zell just a minute. I'm going to try to rectify that and help you guys. And within seconds, uh, Governor Miller held the phone off to the side and said, Mr. President, I'd like to tell the, the group here with me what you're doing. And of course, we all clapped and everything was good. And uh, a few minutes later, they exchanged uh, a little conversation and hung up. Moments after uh, hanging up, my son, Lee, who was probably five or six years old at the time, he comes walking down the hallway. And my wife uh, says, Lee, where have you been? You just missed it. Your daddy and Governor Miller just talked to the President of the United States. And my son, with a little smirky grin, says, I didn't miss anything. I was listening on the extension. <laughs> and uh, the next day, on the Atlanta Journal, AJC had a headline, I think, uh, something to the effect of uh, President declares Georgia emergency, federal emergency. And in a little caption below it, it says, as Taylor Sheriff's son eavesdrops. <laughs> The fact that Georgia was declared a federal disaster area from my kitchen was, I even, I saved the telephone. You know, we do everything now is on cell phone, but I, I saved that phone. It's in the closet. I said, one day, you know, it, uh, it'll be a conversation piece. <laughs> oh man, that is too funny. That was the voice of my longtime friend, Nick Giles, telling one of his amazing stories. He is my guest today and you will hear more stories. I also want to announce and clear the air that Nick is not dead. In fact, as you can tell by listening to him, he's very much alive. Although a Goddard has not been in the funeral business in Taylor County for almost 25 years, there's something about a picture posted with a brief write-up with the Goddard name attached to it that some people will think it is an obituary. When one person thinks that and passes on the news, word gets around pretty quickly in a small town. In this case, I did post a picture and a write-up about Nick, but that was just an attempt to promote this particular episode of the podcast. It was not to announce his passing. So if you have taken tater salad or fried chicken to the house, you can certainly go get it and eat it yourself. That is, if Nick hasn't already eaten it. This is Bruce Goddard, by the way, and you're listening to the View from a Hearse podcast. My previous comment about the obituary was an addition that Nick was not privy to when we recorded this. But as always, thank you for listening. Nick Giles is a former longtime sheriff of Taylor County, Georgia. I believe you will discover that being a sheriff in a small rural county is different than you think it is. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that many of us have no idea about. Nick is a great guy. His reputation as a sheriff and as a human being is as good as it gets. And trust me, I would know that. He was raised by great parents who set him on the right path. And he and his wife Kay have a wonderful family of their own that he'll tell you about. Nick has met an awful lot of people along the way in his role as sheriff and in other roles. With that comes lots of stories, as you might imagine. So before we get into all this, Nick, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? <clears throat> okay, great. Uh, 
after that kind of an introduction, Bruce, I think we ought to call it quits right now. Uh, that, that was great, and thank you very much. Uh, well, you're well uh, thought of, for sure. Well, you're well, well thought thank of. You, thank you so much. Uh, first, let me start off and just tell you a little quick bit about my family. I met my wife, Kay, 40-plus years ago. She was a young school teacher in Taylor County, and uh, I squired her around a little bit, and we courted there for a couple of years got married. Uh, matter of fact, we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary this March. Uh, we've been blessed with two great, great kids. Our son, Lee, he's now 38. He and his wife, Lindsay, uh, live at St. Simon's Island, and they have three children. Uh, the first, Thomas Edwin Giles, named after my dad. We call him Tomcat. He's six years old. Uh, William Hardy Giles, we call him Woody. He's three years old. He's named after two of my grandfathers. And the youngest, uh, six months, uh, born back in October, James Terrell Giles, uh, also known as JT. Uh, JT is named after Lindsay's father, Terry. Uh, Lee uh, is the uh, golf sales manager for Sea Island Resorts. And Lindsay works for the hospital, the Southeast Georgia health system there at the Glen County Brunswick Hospital. Not only is she beautiful, not only is she a good wife and a good mother, she is a financial analyst for a multi-specialty physician practice within the Southeast Georgia health system. Hmm. Last January, Lindsay stopped what she was doing to set up and manage the COVID vaccine clinic at the hospital. And last wow. August, she set up and managed uh, the Delta variant testing clinic there. While doing all of that, she was pregnant. She would get up and leave home at six in the morning, not return until sometime at night. Lee would have to look after the kids for that part, but, but she volunteered to do that. She just felt like it was something she needed to do. She right now currently oversees all the prior authorization department and electronic health record training team. Uh, and I just can't tell you how proud I am of Lindsay and all she's accomplished. Uh, our uh, daughter, Lauren, is now 34. She and her husband, Ben, live in Bozeman, Montana, and they have two great kids. Uh, ben, uh, Benjamin Wynn is uh, seven years old. And Catherine Lee is a four. Kaylee, uh, I call her KL, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Mr. Kenneth Lee Barrow was one of my best friends ever. Oh, he I was worked, he was mine uh, too, man. Oh, man. I, I worked for him as a kid loading watermelons, and up until uh, right until his death, Mr. Kenneth and I ate breakfast together every morning at five o'clock. And I told him when Catherine Lee, her name, Kaylee. Her first name, Catherine, is obviously for my mother, and uh, the K on it is for K, and then the Lee is for our son, Lee, and I, I call her KL, and I'd always tell Mr. Kenneth that we, they named her after him, and <laughs> oh, we had a big to-do about that. He he really liked it, got a big charge out of it. But he was they, a uh, character for sure. Oh, he, he really was, uh, but they live in Bozeman, Dan's a dentist, uh, dentist there. Lauren majored in early childhood education, and uh, she hopes to return to teaching as soon as Kaylee starts school. 
Right. Well, no. One thing that that I've noticed about you, like all of us, when you get start getting our age, you spending a heck of a lot of time with your kids. I see you out oh. in Montana. And oh, see man. You at, I, the island I, down there. I, I tell you, we uh, we don't get to go to Montana a lot. We go, you know, two or three times, and uh, they come here a couple of times. Thank goodness for FaceTime. Your children are a product of y'all, and it's incredible the quality of people come from places that are small and rural like what you and I grew up in. It's pretty heck of a story. So, Nick, you, you have obviously have a wonderful family, and I know, I see you. You enjoying the heck out of them, and they oh, love. Yeah. I, and I know they love I, y'all, man. I, I can see it. I, and I do. It ain't nothing more important than that. If we didn't talk about anything else, just talk about that. That's enough. I can tell you that. But that's uh, right. My mother, Catherine Payne Giles, she worked until she was ninety years old. Uh, she was a bookkeeper at the Ford Place in Butler. She was a bookkeeper at Payne's Warehouse in Cotton Gin. And she also kept books for my dad at the Standard Oil Distributorship. She lived to be 97. And during World War II, she rebuilt generators and starters for Fort Benning for the military. And her claim to fame was she sat at the table one night with Mr. Henry Ford and his wife, Ms. Ford. They were at a, they were at a uh, dealership meeting sponsored by Beaudry Ford. <laughs> Uh, in Atlanta, and early on, Ms. Uh, Ford realized that there were only going to be three ladies in attendance, she and Ms. Beaudry and my mom, so Ms. Ford prearranged where they could all sit at the same table. A week or two later, she got a Western Union telegram from Ms. Ford telling her how much she enjoyed it. She loved that. My dad, Thomas Edwin Giles, everybody in the county knew him as Tomcat, yep. and uh, he was full of life. He, he, he loved everything. He was my hero. And he's still my hero today. Daddy served 18 months in combat in the South Pacific during World War II. He was a Marine gunner, a master sergeant, and flew on a TBM Avenger. That was a torpedo bomber. And he was a gunner. He participated in three major campaigns, Guadalcanal, Bougainville, and New Georgia. His unit received a presidential citation for gallantry for their bombing of Ray Ball. He served also, his commanding officer was Colonel Joseph Foss, who later became a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Daddy was a heck of a baseball player, played baseball with a, a semi-pro team in Tampa, Florida, called the Tampa Smokers, based out of Ebro City. Daddy used to tell a story about his catcher's mitt. Those catcher's mitts back in those days were made out of nothing. The catchers were always getting bones broken in the hands and bruised up real bad. Daddy was working at a place, Kingman Packing Company, a meat packing company, and he would cut him a, a big piece of uh, beef, wrap it in a loincloth, and slide it down in his mitt. And it, it did the trick. There's no injuries. It absorbed everything. But what was the cool part about it was after about 15 or 20 pitches, the blood from that raw meat started running down his arm <laughs> and the opposing team thought, man, this guy is one tough cat out here, you know, and they, oh, they just, they feared him. Mm -hmm. But I grew up, I grew up all my life, Bruce, as you know, in Taylor County, uh, I grew you come up from good stock, brother. I really did. I, I grew up as a single uh, child. I had an older brother that died when I was, uh, before I was born, he died, uh, 
at birth. I had two first cousins, still got them, Nina Gerald and Willie Payne. Yep. They're about as close as a brother and a sister as you could you could have. Uh, we grew up within walking distance of one another. We ate at my grandmother's house every Sunday for lunch and dinner. Willie and I did all the things young boys do growing up. We worked on the farms for Uncle Hubert and Uncle W.S., uh, we loaded watermelons. We had a little roving band of boys in town. One week we were loading watermelons for H.A. Lop. The next week we were loading for Mr. Rand Cooper or Mr. Kenneth Barra or Uncle W.S. or some of them. We just, we went all over during the summer, but we, I guess the hardest job I ever had in my life was pulling cuckaburs in a peanut field. Uh, that was awful. Uh, I had Mr. Buren Joyner had to come catch me up every morning, you know, because I'd lag behind from all the other fellows. But uh, back in those days, Bruce, I remember fertilizer, we referred to it as guana. And ammonium nitrate was soda, a top dressing. We worked hard, but we enjoyed it. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have iPads or or things like that. And uh, I never picked any cotton, but I ginned some. Uncle W.S. had a cotton gin, and Willie and I worked in that cotton gin every year. But I did have some friends that picked cotton. Uh, I know you remember Jake Woodall. Yep. He married Mr. Howard Hennon's daughter. That's right. They live in Texas, I, yep. Yeah. I remember Jake Woodall and all of his brothers picking cotton as kids, and they picked for one cent a pound, and they were glad to get it. Hmm. Uh, Willie and I picked butter beans and peas for two and three cent a pound, and we thought we were doing something, you know. Mom used to buy our clothes at Mr. Thomas Mathis's a clothing store there, Butler. And I remember she always bought our blue jeans two or three inches too long, and we folded them up. She said we could grow into them, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but heck, till the third or fourth grade, we never wore shoes to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, our attire was blue jeans, a white T-shirt, and that was it, you know. Mm-hmm. So we had a good time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got in all this uh, law enforcement career. How, okay. how did that start? After graduating high school in 73, I went to America's to the trade school. I was going to take up automotive uh, maintenance and mechanical work and all that. I was really into cars back in those days. And I am probably one of the few people that have ever flunked the technical school. But after the first semester, I had flunked so badly. Of course, all I was doing was partying. I had a I had a party mm-hmm. crowd and it was, you know, out all night long. And I remember yep. after the first, after the first semester, my dad told me that he thought it would be good for me to let some other student use my desk, maybe the next semester and maybe for me to come home and, and get a job. Well, Hey, that was music to my ears. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to make money. Only thing on my mind was girls and fast cars. <laughs> So I come home and I worked uh, at the Ford place for Uncle Hugh, but I worked at the Sand Pit in Junction City. I did a variety of jobs. But along about 1974, the EMT business started up in Taylor County. Mm-hmm. I know you remember it well. Mac, uh, your brother, Matt Goddard, uh, ran the ambulance service in Reynolds. Of course, you probably ran it as much as Mac did, but yep. he was the director. I, I, became a, I became an EMT in 1974, too. Okay. Yep. We were right about that same time, yep. and uh, uh, Ed got Ed uh, Robinson ran yep. the uh, the show in Butler, and Ed Robinson uh, was kind enough to let me do some part time EMT work once I had graduated, and I worked uh, 
part-time with Taylor County for a while. That's where I got the bug at. It really set me on fire. So I applied and got a job in Peach County that year. And at that time, the ambulance service in Peach County was being operated out of the sheriff's office. Later, it moved over to the hospital. But when I started, uh, it was run out of the sheriff's office. And Sheriff Reg Mullis was in charge. Well, I loved it. I was, I was doing what I wanted to do. But I also got uh, close to a lot of people over there. I met a lot of people. Jimmy Yancey, mm-hmm. Jimmy Jones, James Barber, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those guys. And, and I, I got the law enforcement bug right there. That's where it all started. So I come back to Taylor County and I, I go down and I see Sheriff Charles Wright. And I, I begged him, you know, Sheriff, I really want to be a deputy sheriff. Uh, can you, can you, would you hire me? Well, he did. He hired me in 1975. I worked for Sheriff Wright for uh, nine years. The first year, Sheriff Wright put me in the jail and on the radio. And he said, you're going to have to work here for at least a year before I put you out on the road. Best thing he ever did for me, because when you're out on the road, you don't have an opportunity to judge people very much, size them up and determine what's going to happen next. When that person is locked up in that jail, oh, he can raise all amount of cane he wants to in there. He can't hurt you. He's locked Mm -hmm. up. It gives you an opportunity to see how people react in different situations. So, and of course, I've, I've been a big advocate of that. Every deputy I ever hired had to work in the jail at least a year before I put him out on the road. And I see a lot of deputies nowadays, and I see a lot of police officers they go to mandate school, they get certified, and they're thrown out on the streets right by themselves. And that is asking for trouble. Finally, uh, I, I got to go to mandate school. After six weeks, he uh, put me on the road. But for so many uh, nights, uh, I mean, it was just like a year or two, I probably rode with Chief Deputy Paul Robinson every night. And I learned so much from him, uh, Sheriff Wright, there was no school that could compare to what I learned from those two men. They really taught me a lot. And it's not only, not only those people, Butler police chief, Carol Peacock, Reynolds police chief, LD Gordon. Mm-hmm. I can't begin to tell you what those men meant to me and what I learned from them. Not so much about law enforcement, but about how to treat people, and, and things like that. And that's where it all started. I had some other good buddies in those early days, too. Uh, we all remember Donnie Peacock from Ficklin Mill, Georgia. Donnie was a state a patrolman. State yep. Yes, sir. And he would patrol Taylor County. I'd ride with him a lot of nights. Captain Jack Barker. Oh, man. I can't. He's a legend. And I've eaten recently. I've eaten with Donnie and Jack both in Thomaston. We'll meet up there and have breakfast and uh Reuben Hoyle, Harvell Estes. I learned a lot from those people, and they were good to me. You know, our communication equipment and our radios back in those days was little to nothing. We were lucky if we could reach GSP Manchester at night. Hmm. And I worked the night shift for several years. I'd come home at 11 o'clock and work at 7 the next morning. And uh, many nights after midnight, I was out there by myself. Of course, crime then was not what crime is today. 
but you still, you know, you had to be careful. You had to watch what you were doing. Things could escalate very quickly. Uh, you could get a drunk on the side of the road that uh, didn't want to cooperate right. and it didn't, didn't want to go with you. I don't know how you do it. I can tell even then, yeah. I don't, I don't know how you did it, but that's, that's a well, tough job. Yeah. I mean, back then we didn't have tasers. Right. I mean, and you couldn't just shoot the guy and kill him on the side of the road. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> so you had to improvise, you know, yet we had deputies back then that could fight. I was not one of them. Uh, I was usually pretty good with my mouth. You had to use a lot of psychology and those guys that you just talked about were masters at it, right? They were. We did all kinds of things as deputies back in those days. Uh, We worked a lot of moonshine, a lot of liquor stills, worked a ton of marijuana. Let me tell you, I have sat on so many marijuana fields, I, I couldn't count them all. And I have my buddies all the time tell me, you know, these big deer hunting deals. They'll tell me these stories. I say, man, I'm sitting in my deer stand and that big buck walks out and your chest just gets to beating and banging, you know. And I tell them, I say, let me tell you something. You need to be sitting down on a creek bank at two o'clock in the morning. No lights, no cigarettes. You're scared to death an old water moccasin's going to crawl up your pants leg. You don't know what to do. You're sitting there, and all of a sudden, you hear a car door shut just up the hill. Mm. You're talking about your heart start beating, and a minute later, you see that flashlight coming down the trail. Within minutes, it's time to announce yourself. Mm. And, of course, the guy is going to take what we call the bush bond. He's he's gone, and a lot of deputies would try to chase it. You're never going to catch him. He is more afraid He's scared of any time he's ever been in his life. So mm. the thing to do is you go to the car. You, you, instead of chasing him, you run to his car, and then, you know, you, you, you got he's him wait. from there. That's a chase, let me tell you, an automobile chase. Mm. Back, back in those days, Bruce, we craved a car chase. And, you know, back in those days, cars were fast. We had these roadrunners and Mustangs mm. and things. and all. Everybody had a fast car. And on a Friday or Saturday night, there was a good chance somebody was going to get in a chase with you. And we loved it. I had, I think my first patrol car was a 73 LTD. And Mr. Jamie Cox had built a Boss 429 Cobra jet engine and put in it. (laughs) And it would fly. It wrapped the speedometer completely around the, the dial, you know. And I was a pretty good driver back then. I'd driven some old race cars and, uh, and I was fearless, nothing in an automobile. You, you, you know, I could do it all. And, oh, we just loved a good chase. And uh, nowadays they've got these uh, spike strips that they roll out across the road. Right. Back then we said we had the chrome horn. <laughs> and we'd put the bumper to the back end of them, you know, spin them out and things like that. But, Unbelievable. Uh, did, but did was, you, were was, you trained to do that or you just knew how to do it? <laughs> well, I picked it up from other guys. You know, I'd see yeah. another deputy do it and then mimic what he had done, that sort of thing. So after doing all that and you were deputy for all these years for Charlie Wright, and I know that Sheriff Wright had, had a great influence on you. Oh, he did. He did. He was, uh, you know, Sheriff Wright had a way about doing things. It was his way of the highway. You understood that right off the bat. I, I've never heard anybody speak bad of him. He was good to the people of Taylor County. He looked after folks. When you decided, I'm going to run for sheriff, did you have somebody running against you? Oh, yes, I had. <laughs> I can't remember. It was six or seven people ran against me. 
this was in 1983. Sheriff, Sheriff Wright, as you know, was killed in a, a very tragic automobile accident. Right. And right after that, I had, uh, I had people come to me and ask me to run. And I talked it over with Kay and, and decided we'd do it. But we had a runoff after the, the first election. And the runoff was between myself and Judson Montgomery. Judson is a dear friend of mine, has been for a long time. <coughs> And I think uh, if we ever had a clean election, I think his and mine was. I, I didn't, you know, badmouth him. He didn't badmouth me. It was funny. Judson and I went to mandate school at the same time. We rode together. He was working with the Reynolds Police Department, started in law enforcement about the same time I did. So we had ridden together back and forth to Columbus for six weeks. And, you know, if you don't know a guy in six weeks of riding two hours a day, we're sure. not going to. Judd and I, we're still great friends, and uh, I see him all along around town somewhere we speak. Um, so so but, let uh, me ask you this. So all of a yeah. sudden, you were elected sheriff, and you go in the front. You're in charge. What was your thoughts? Uh, all of a sudden, you're the sheriff of the county. Well, it, it, was, it, it was good, and it was bad. I can only imagine. I, it was not what I thought it was going to be because I'm thinking, you know, I got elected. Everybody's going to like me. There was still a lot of people resented the fact that I'm only 27 years old. And you can imagine a guy 50 or 60 years old, he doesn't appreciate a young guy like me out there telling him what to do or how to do it. So getting over that hurdle took a couple of years to, you know, I had to prove myself. Uh, I had to do some things and, and show the public that I was going to be a man of my word, that I would, uh, that I'd get out there and work for them and work hard and things like that. But, but I always, surrounded myself with good employees and if you surround yourself with good folks that sure does lighten the load on you and, and i had good deputies i had uh, mac perry uh, you know that was another thing i appointed an african-american as my first chief deputy he had the seniority in the office uh, he had been there longer than anybody and it was only right and i felt i was doing the right thing but I had him, I had Lorraine McCants, I had uh, Jim Wainwright, Oscar Carpenter. I tell you, one one person I'll mention, of course, he's like a legend in law enforcement in middle Georgia, and that was Mr. Wanza Davis. Right. Uh, Mr. Wanza was one of my deputies. He was probably in his 60s when I got elected sheriff. I had just turned 27 when the August primary uh, developed, and that's when I, I won the runoff uh, after the primary. You know, I've always felt a little uncomfortable trying to tell Mr. Wanza what to do when he had 10 times more experience than I did and, and age-wise and all. But let me tell you, Wanza Davis could not have been – I mean, there was, he was the best political machine that I had. And i tell you what I mean. Say, for instance, we had a, uh, a man died in the community and left a widow. Two weeks later, Mr. Wanza goes out to her house. I know absolutely nothing about this. I don't know what's going on. But he would make a habit of going to that lady's home, knock on her door. When she came to the door, he would remove his hat, place it somewhere in the vicinity of his heart, and she'd say, Mr. Davis, can I help you? And his remark would be, Ma'am, Sheriff Giles sent me out here to check on you. Hmm. Is there anything we can do for you, or do you need anything? I wouldn't know a thing about it. That's a amazing. week later, a week later, I might I might get a little thank you card in the mail 
or I might see the lady, uh, you know, at the grocery store, the post office or something, and they'd thank me. <laughs> that happened more times than I can remember. Uh, Wanza was just, he was a caring person, and he wanted to help people. Right. Now, let me tell you, don't cross him. Right. Don't don't raise your hand to him because you're not going to like the results of what's about to happen. Wanza's uh, thought was that if you stuck your finger in the light socket, you got punished immediately. Hmm. And like I said, we didn't have tasers. We didn't have stun guns and those things. And, and buddy, when you, when you crossed up with Mr. Wanza, he was Bruce. He was a man's man. Yep. When Wanza Davis walked in the room, he commanded respect and he got it. And Oh, I, I just can't say enough about Wanza Davis. He was, how long uh, did you serve as sheriff, Nick? Uh, 15 years and I forget how many months, six months or something like this. Not quite 16 years. I had served as president of the Sheriff's Association in 92 and 93. And I had an offer to go to work with them as a lobbyist and do special events work for Georgia Sheriff Youth Homes. My salary would absolutely double. Right. I mean, it was a no brainer. I loved Bruce. Let me tell you, when I went, when I got elected sheriff, my salary was $18,000 a year. Isn't that amazing? I worked 70 and 80 hours a week. You couldn't make it. I had two kids. I, I needed to think about college and things like that. Going to work with the Sheriff's Association would have doubled my salary. You know, a lot less work, a lot less stress. So, so I took it. When I got to Atlanta uh, with the Sheriff's Association, was in Stockbridge, and I worked in Stockbridge, but I lobbied some some down at the Capitol, you know, and I got on there and uh, staying at the old stadium hotel over there on Capitol Avenue was not at all what I thought it was going to be. I met a lawyer from Columbus, Georgia, named Jim Butler, and that's who I work for now. I've been with Jim 21 years now, and I'm the senior investigator here. We've got... Uh, Got offices in Columbus, uh, Atlanta, and Savannah, wow. and uh, we we do we don't do any criminal work. It's a, a lot of product liability, a plaintiff type work. You've had some bizarre cases that you've had to deal <laughs> with being sheriff. Just to, people have no idea yeah. what a sheriff has to deal with, and yeah. I think they would love to hear some of that. Probably the craziest thing ever happened to me. I was approached in uh, I think it was like early April, maybe it was '84. I had been sheriff even a year, and there was a guy, I won't mention his name because he has relatives in our county, and, and they're good people, but this guy was, uh, I knew that he was involved in drug smuggling. Uh, he was a great pilot. He was a daredevil, uh, lived by the seat of his pants. He was down in New Orleans, uh, Baton Rouge area. He was flying uh, uh, workers out to the oil derricks and back on a helicopter. I had enough intelligence and had talked to other law enforcement calling me, wanting to check on him and you know things like that. I knew what was going on, but like I said, he hadn't been caught at that time. Well, the guy calls me and says, uh, I'm coming to Butler tomorrow and I'd like to come talk to you a minute. I said, sure, come on. He comes to see me and he's got a pistol strapped on. You know, I thought that was a little unusual. He tells me, he is working for the federal government. Well, I knew that was a lie. There's no way the federal government would hire this guy. But he tells me that he wants me to meet a guy, his uh, his supervisor. He wants me to meet him 
and wants to talk to me about a special mission that's going on in the in the government. No, I said, sure, I, I, you know, whatever. So he tells me we're going to come to Butler next week on such and such a day, and we'd like to meet with you. I said, all right. The day before then, he calls me, says, we'll be at the airport in Butler at 12 noon. Sure enough, the next day, this big Mitsubishi aircraft lands, twin engine, nicest plane I'd seen in Butler ever. Lands, and this guy gets out. He and the man I had talked with get out. And he introduces himself to me as Barry Seal. I didn't, I'd never heard of Barry Seal. No, No idea who this guy was. He was a chubby guy. He tells me that they both work for the government, that they have a supervisor in the National Security Council. And what they are doing is they are moving weapons to Nicaragua to support the Contra rebels against the Sandinista, the Sandinista, uh, uh, you know, outlaws. I'm like, you know, this is, you know, this is too far fetched. And they wanted to bring guns from Columbus, from Fort Benning, to my shop building, which sat on the airport. There was uh, there was no fence around the Butler Airport back in those days. It was totally open. They wanted to put a pickup truck with these guns in my shop building. Then a plane would land. The guns would be carried and offloaded onto the this aircraft, and they'd leave. And that's all I had to do. I still declined because I knew the guy that first contacted me and I'm, you know, he can't work for the federal government. This has got to be more than what they're telling me. Mm. And I'm all, I'm the whole time I'm thinking drug smuggling. So I declined a day or two later. They asked me if I would meet with their supervisor in Atlanta, who was with, I think like the national security council, you know, whatever. I said, okay, I, you know, I'll do it. I still had a little doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. I go to Peachtree to Cab Airport up in DeKalb County, and I meet this guy. He gets a plane lands. I didn't see the plane land, but when the man walked into the FBO, he sticks his hand out and introduces himself. We didn't have, you know, internet. None of this had made the newspapers at that time. This is early 1984. And again, I declined him because he wasn't in uniform. He had no business card. He had no nothing. Well, I, I politely declined, told him I just wasn't interested. And he thanked me and he, he left. I ran over to the window and wrote the end number down on the plane he was in. And on the way home, when I got back to Butler, I called the DEA in Atlanta because I thought they were trying to recruit me for some, you know, right. clandestine drug operation. So I call the DEA. I tell them that this guy, they said he was a lieutenant colonel, and this guy, Barry Seal, says he's working for the government. And the guy I knew previously, you know, and gave him all this information and never heard another word back. That was, it was just over. And a year or so later, it's all over the news. And here's a picture of broadcast all over the world. And I'm, I'm like, that's him. You know, I met this guy. And then there's pictures of Barry Seal. He was probably the most notable drug smuggler of all time. As a matter of fact, uh, what uh, I think last year or something, Tom Cruise did a movie portraying Barry Seal. Uh, the movie was called American Made. Huh. And, uh, oh, I mean, it's just 
crazy. And I then, you know, within a, a year, by 1986, he'd been charged with three or four felonies. He'd been stripped of rank. He's, uh, you know, no longer a soldier. Uh, Barry Seal gets assassinated at a Salvation Army uh, depot in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, by a uh, cartel hit squad. Barry Seal was so wanted by the Medellin cartel in South America, the the cartel uh, leader, Pablo Escobar, put a $1 million bounty on Seal's head for anybody that could kill it. He also put a $5 million bounty on him, anybody that could bring him to him alive. And they wound up killing him. And my buddy wound up dying upstate, I think, Ohio, in a federal penitentiary. They all got caught. And they were trying to suck you in with them, right? Yeah. Sometimes I read about the Iran-Contra affair. But I think, you know, I could have been a part of that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, thank, thank goodness I wasn't. I guess I guess another bizarre story was one that you and I were involved in. I was called one night in the middle of the night out to a hunting camp. I remember that and one. I get out there in this hunting camp. Is it appropriate to tell this, Bruce? Do you want me to tell it? Probably not, but it's okay. I, we don't okay. we don't know who they are. If they, I wouldn't know them if they stood on the hood of well, my car. Well, I, I get out there and I, I met at this hunting camp. It's a cabin, and I met by this lady. She's very distraught. The call came in. Our dispatcher told me that there was a deceased person in this hunting camp. So I get out there. And when they told me a deceased person, I told them, you know, well, call Bruce, get him to come on, you know, and uh, you were the coroner at the time. And uh, I get out there and uh, the lady meets me at the door and she says he's back here in the bed. I go back there and uh, the first thing hits me is the man He's deceased, all right. There's no doubt about that. He had some discoloring and uh, things like that. I could look at him till he was dead. <laughs> but what threw me off course was the clothing that he had on. He was uh, dressed in, in women's clothing for a good bit. And I, you know, I'm like, well, I know things get kinky and people do some crazy things, you know. So at that point, she says, uh, I need to talk to, if you're the person in charge, I need to talk to you in private. And I said, yes, ma'am. What is it? She says, he's not my husband. I said, okay. Um, I've dealt with a few things similar to this. I said, this is no big deal. I said, I'll try to keep it sort of secret if I can, if he's your boyfriend and you want to, you know, you don't want people to know about it. She said, no, sir, you don't understand. He's my first cousin. I said, oh, Lord. I said, all right. Well, I think at that time I went out and conferred with Bruce about what should we do. Anybody that you can call that can help with this situation. And and she did. She had somebody in the family she could call. And that person said, let me come down there and I'll, I'll take care of it. And, you know, we're sitting there dealing with this thing. And, I mean, we can't hurt the guy any more than he's already hurt. He's dead. And uh, all we can do at this point is hurt a family. You know, this man had children. He had a wife. And, you know, so we just sort of let it go and let the let the relative come down and take care of it. That was probably one of the strangest deals. Y'all called me and I got that and you said, we need to talk about this. And, <laughs> yeah. and then you yeah, told me to. the situation. And I remember going in, 
he actually died in the act of sex, if I remember right. Isn't that what that, it says? That that could be. It's been a long time. Yeah, but, but I, uh, I saw it, these these they had a lot of VHS movies, and I figured they were looking at porno <laughs> movies. And I went over to look at all. Look, it was Western movies they were looking at. <laughs> that was a bizarre thing. But you did the right thing. We just we both said that we're not going to lie. If somebody yeah, asks yeah. us, we'll we'll tell the truth. But if they That's don't, right. we just gonna say That's that right. he died yeah. of a heart was, attack, which he did. It was it was you know with no need to hurt any of any people further. You also had relationships with these judges, and I know one of them was Judge Lynn. He was a <laughs> he was around a long time. Tell us about him and your relationship. Oh, I know man. you got some stories with. He's a superior court judge, and of course the sheriff. Is obviously friends with all these judges that come, the circuit judges that come in in the county. So right. I know yeah. you got some stories uh, there. Yeah, um, Judge Judge Land, John Henry Land was a was a dear friend. He uh, helped me a lot, and I didn't realize it to begin with. But with the first term of court we had, he tells me, he says, "I want you to open court. You open both doors. You swing them out wide. You announce, hear ye, hear ye.'" This session of Taylor County Superior Court is nine session. You give the date, and then you say the Honorable John Henry Land presiding. He said, I'll make my entrance into the courtroom, and I want you to sit right beside me. I said, yes, sir. So I got a chair and put it up there right beside the judge's bench where I could be beside him. And what he would do, we would have arraignment day. That's where all the defendants can come in and they have the opportunity of pleading guilty or innocent. And a lot of them would come in and want to plead, you know, guilty and get the case over with. Judge Land on many occasions would turn around and look at me and say, Mr. Sheriff, what do you think I ought to do with him? <laughs> and of course, the guy being a Taylor County constituent, if he hadn't committed a terrible act, and I thought he was somebody we could maybe rehabilitate, you know, I I would say, well, Yana, uh, he works every day, and I think if you put him on sheriff's probation, I'll look after him. Then Judge Land would turn around and say, Mr. So-and-so, the sheriff has just saved you a term in the state penitentiary. You ought to thank him when court's over. And said, that's what I'll do, sheriff. I'm going to put him on sheriff's probation. You know, there was no such thing as sheriff's probation (laughs) other than just it was a term. But – we did that numerous times. One morning we were sitting in the judge's chambers and Mr. Garland Bird come in and right after arraignment. And of course he and judge land were best friends. So people don't know. He was a well-known attorney that was at one time, a Lieutenant governor. Oh, of Georgia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Mr. Garland was a Taylor County resident, uh, a great, great lawyer and, and great friend. And I, but anyway, uh, Mr. Garland comes in and says, judge, you got to quit doing this. Judge Land says, I got to quit doing what, Garland? He said, you got to quit letting the sheriff handle all these cases. He's costing us money. He said, me and Alec Davis not making a dime with him in here. And uh, he said, he said, on Monday mornings before arraignment, said, I look out my window and there's 20 or 30 people lined up over at the sheriff's office getting free legal advice. And he's li- he's literally representing them in court. You got to stop it. <laughs> and uh, Judge Land started laughing, and he said, "Well, Garland, I do see your point, you know." But all of my judges, uh, I had uh, Judge Mullins Wisnett. He was great. He was Judge Wisnett uh, did the swearing in ceremony for me when I was 
uh, elected president of the Georgia Sheriff's Association simply because he was the chief judge at the time. But I had Judge Bill Smith, Judge Doug Pullen. Uh, you know, I made just some great guys, and they they really really helped me out. They looked after me, you know, and that's I was a young sheriff, mm-hmm. and I needed somebody to keep me steered in the right direction. You had a story about K. Roney Wainwright that that I oh, heard yeah, you tell yeah, one time. Yeah, tell me yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were at a fish fry one night. Judge Land and I had gone out uh, somewhere to a cabin or something to fish fry. And, uh, and we're out there, and Kay Roney is there. And for the people that don't know Kay Roney, he was, he was like a legend in Taylor County. He was one he of was, a kind. He was one of a kind. Always had a joke or a story or something. And we're out there, and uh, Kay Roney's had a drink or two. And he walks up to Judge Land and out of the blue says, Judge you got any pictures of your wife in the nude? And Judge Land has just sort of stopped in his tracks. And he says, no, Corona, I don't. Out in the country, we all called him Caroni. People from yeah. the city called him Corona. Because that's how he Judge, spelled his name, Corona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. The Judge Land is shell-shocked, and he says, uh, no, Corona, I don't. And all of a sudden, Caroni opens up his shirt pocket, and reaches in as if to get some. And he says, how would you like to buy some? <laughs> and I tell you what, I, I just about fainted right there. And I told him, I said, Kironi, you got to go. You got to, you, you're going to get us all locked up here tonight. But Judge Land had a big laugh about it. He thought it was funny. And for some reason after that, every time we had a fish fry, a deer supper or something, Judge Land expected Kironi to be there. And Sometimes he had some good jokes, and sometimes he told us something that would make you cringe. Yeah, you. But, when he uh, came in my funeral home, I would look around when he was to tell me a story to see who's standing by. One time, Nick, I he was, it was some of his relatives, but he was comforting his mama and maybe his aunt. And he he was in the. I was driving the family. We were pulling off from the funeral home, following the hearse, and they were both crying. Caroni had his arms around both of them. It's very emotional moment and all of a sudden Kay Roney said Bruce you know how many people it, it takes to to eat a possum and uh, I said what <laughs> I thought how many <laughs> what am I supposed to say he said three you got to have two to watch the traffic <laughs> what was your greatest achievement as a sheriff wow uh, Bill Smith was a district attorney William J Smith was our district attorney and he had been an FBI agent prior to becoming a lawyer. And he talked to me about the FBI Academy and told me that I could get in the FBI Academy with an invitation and that um, that it was a very prestigious school for law enforcement. And, and he wanted me to do it. So I, I, I do, he, he helps me do all the paperwork, the application and everything. He and I walk over to Garland Bird's office, Mr. Garland, the lawyer, and uh, we go over there and tell him what we're up to. Mr. Garland says, let me call Sam Nunn right quick. And sitting there in his office, he calls Senator Sam Nunn and asks him, says, Sam, and they're like best friends. They're right. talking one-on-one. He says, Sam, I want to get my sheriff in the FBI Academy. What do we need to do? Sam Nunn says, let me call Judge William Webster. He was a director of the FBI at the time. <laughs> See what we can do. Three or four weeks later, I went to Atlanta and took the polygraph test, the drug test, did the background test and all that. And a month or two later, I got a written invitation from Judge William Webster 
to become, come to the FBI. Well, I started in March the 29th of 1987, and I graduated on June the 7th. And I was in the 149th session uh, at the U.S. Marine Corps base in Quantico, Virginia. And one of the highlights of that was my dad was able to come to my graduation. Wow. wow. The, one of the one of the U.S. Marine Corps bands played at our graduation. And, and he, what he was, was a Marine, what, yeah. Yeah, and what was cool, I was invited to attend the academy by Judge William Webster. By the time I graduated, Judge William Sessions was the director. So I was invited under Webster and graduated under Sessions. So here's this young and, guy that started being an EMT and hanging around the local sheriff's department. And, and pool cookbars in peanut field. Yeah. And now walking down the stage at the FBI Academy. Un unbelievable and, and, and let me tell you something else. You'll get a charge out of this. Down Scott came with daddy. So Downs and my dad were there. That was a big deal. Well, the second, dealer, the second, dealer Downs, yep. Yep. The second big deal for me was when I got uh, elected as president of the Georgia Sheriff's Association. And that's of the 159 sheriffs in Georgia. They chose to have me as their leader uh, for 92 and 93. Bell South sponsored the occasion and the banquet. It was held at the Cobb Galleria in uh, uh, Marietta. And uh, by that time, my dad was deceased, but my mom got to be there. And she yeah. got to be present. So that was that was my two real, real big deals. Well, you know, it's right there. amazing. It's amazing. So yeah, it was so let me ask you this. Did you have any disappointments in the, being the sheriff? Sure. Sure, I did. I guess, you know, the biggest disappointment, Bruce, was the murder of our school teacher, our beloved school teacher, Tommy Purvis. Tommy was a dear friend of mine. He was a friend of my family. When I built my house, Tommy helped Mr. Neil Hennon during the summer months when he was out of school building my house. We attended some car races together, and, and we were good friends. And uh, he was murdered in his own home uh, one night. We never did solve the case. And that weighs on my shoulders. I take full responsibility for it. We did a lot. We had the GBI there within hours. We had the crime lab there within hours uh, from Atlanta. I took the case to the Behavioral Sciences Unit at Quantico when I was up there and had them analyze it and research it. We went to a grand jury a couple of times. Unfortunately, uh, the stars didn't line up and the district attorney didn't think we had enough to indict someone. <clears throat> I did, but I wasn't right. in charge of that part of it. It's still an open case. Uh, I think there's not many days of the week that go by that I don't think about that case. Uh, so, you know, Nick, that's but, what people don't realize, the the passion somebody like you has for that. And here you hadn't been sheriff in, for whatever it's been, 24 or yeah. five years. Yeah. And you still think I about still, a case that I, didn't I get solved. I still think about it. He's yeah. got one of them. I hadn't talked with his mother in a long time now, but she's one of the most precious ladies yeah, you ever met. And, and let me tell you something hard to do. Uh, it's hard to answer the phone or have her walk in your office. And, you know, six months has passed. Six years has passed. Yep. And you still hadn't solved the crime. And one day she loves you. The next day she hates you. And you can't blame her. You yeah. can't blame her one bit. You know, right. So that was... I, I won't really go into all of this. Right. You know, it's still an open case. And I, I actually addressed this 
somewhat a year or so ago on Facebook and tried to explain what occurred, what we did, and what, what investigative techniques we used. But, you know, again, like I said all the time, I was the I was the sheriff at the time. I was the head law enforcement guy in the county, and it's on my shoulders. Wow. And uh, I pray wow. one day it'll be solved. We had another case, Bruce, that, and I, I won't mention names here because they're relatives, but we had an elderly lady uh, in town or in the county that was assaulted uh, soon after I was elected sheriff. We never solved that. <clears throat> there were no witnesses or anything like that. I actually talked to Sheriff Watson and his investigator, Wallace Carpenter, not long ago. There are so many new techniques for DNA testing and uh, automated fingerprint, the automated, you know, all the tests that are out there today. And there is a new test on DNA that can really do some, some great things. It solved a lot of cases. I always felt like the suspect uh, left Taylor County and went to another state. I talked to the sheriff uh, last year about this, and I talked to him again recently about it. He has met with the GBI, and we're very hopeful that they're going to go to another state and maybe conduct a search warrant and get a DNA sample from this suspect. And I'm still very hopeful that uh, that that case could be solved. Mm. I, I don't know, but it's a uh, there's still a lot of hope out there for me that I think we can solve it. It's just going to take a little little legwork. Didn't you have a friendship with President Carter? I did, yeah. Back in those days when he was president and I was sheriff, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have iPads and laptops and all that sort of stuff. I had a good friend that was on his Secret Service detail, a guy, Stan Burris from Albany. Stan would call me on the hot phone which was not a secure phone, but it was something the White House had provided. But they would come from uh, planes going to Marietta to Dobbins Air Force Base or either to Warner Robins. And back then, where Smith's Pharmacy is located now, Bobby Bazemore's Drugstore, was started life as a Hardee's restaurant. And Hardee's was sort of a new chain that had, had come out. And President Carter loved a Hardee's breakfast. So Stan Burris would call me and say, Sheriff, we're about five miles out of Butler. We're going to stop at Hardee's and get a biscuit. President Carter wants to know if you want to join him. And I, of course, naturally I would, you know, I'd, I'd take off up there and we'd have breakfast. He'd have uh, the first lady, Ms. Carter with him and we would eat. Well, then we get through eating. He'd say, Sheriff, I need a, a, a landline phone. Can we go down to the office? Certainly. So we'd go down to the sheriff's office and I'd let him, he'd use my desk and, and my phone and Ms. Carter, I'd, I'd ask her, you know, do you need to go to the restroom or anything? She'd say, I think I do before we start back. And she'd, I had a little private restroom there in my office and she'd go in there and I'd step outside. I didn't want to listen to whatever was being said. You know? Oh, I, I thought and, you uh, meant you would step outside the restroom while she was using it. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, yeah, I did that too. But I, you got a president of the United States eating at yeah. Hardee's in Butler and coming to your office and sitting at your desk. Can you believe that it? That is crazy. I mean, Unbelievable. I mean, you Did you have to clear it. the building out or anything? Did they check? No, no, no. But I would, uh, you know, I'd, I'd call down there on the radio and I'd tell them, let one of the trustees run through my office and, you know, get the trash out, <laughs> and, you know, make sure, you know, make sure everything's presentable. That is unbelievable. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's just a, a great, he had talked to me about the shoal bass on the Flint River. 
And he later one year he came back up there and went fishing. Well, this was after after he had retired. But yeah. but that's unbelievable that the president, the sitting president of the United States, can use your desk yeah. and miss yeah. the first lady I mean, going in to use your have, restroom. Bruce, we'd have three black suburbans parked out front. You know, I mean, it was it was crazy. But he he's a nice guy. The, the best part of that story was that. She used your restroom, and you said you would step out. I'm glad you stepped out while she was doing that. <laughs> you obviously have had a wonderful career. You're still going strong. You certainly hadn't quit. What advice do you have for your grandchildren? If you could tell them what they need to know about life, what would you tell them? I'd tell them to work hard, train hard. Your hardest times often lead to your greatest moments. That is true. That's that. That'd be it. I think. That is true. Well, you've done a heck of a job. You and Kay both have done a wonderful job raising your kids. You know, it's it's funny. These little towns produce some pretty strong people, and you you and Kay are both examples of that. And your family. I'm proud to know you. What advice do you have for the the next sheriff for Taylor County? <laughs> well, I tell him the first one week they're gonna love you. And the next week, they're going to hate you, but not to worry. You're going to get paid for both weeks. <laughs> I love it, man. Nick, Nick, you're a treasure. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm sure you've probably made some people mad along the way. You can't be sheriff and not upset Apple Card a little bit. But let me tell you, let me tell you the answer to that right quick. My mama told me when I got into politics, she told me, you're going to find out that some people, are still mad because Christmas comes on the 25th of December and there's nothing you can do about it. That's true. And that's right. That's, that's true. true. But the, but the reality is you, you went through that. You have a great reputation. You did a lot of things right. And these stories could go on and on and we need to do it again. Cause I know you've got so many stories. Oh, yeah. You've had a great life. You've had a great run and I really appreciate you joining. I just think people would like to hear from behind the scenes, look at the, at the local sheriff. This has well, been I've, good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, and I hope your uh, listeners are, have enjoyed it. And I would definitely like to come back and do it again. All right, man. Nick, thank you so much. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.